What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. This is Austin, your host for the ad space today. If this is your first time tuning in, then welcome to the community of preparedness. We appreciate you being here. We appreciate your support. Um, guys, I'm going to talk to you about what makes this content free for you, and that is our sponsors. And the first sponsor is Vertix. Um, guys, I've been a big fan of Vertix for a while. I actually have a few bags of theirs that predate my time here at Fieldcraft Survival. And um, I've always loved that their products have your preparedness in mind, you know, and um, all of their bags have that ballistic panel capability where you can just slide in whatever ballistic panel it is you have. Velcro is right in place. Super awesome, super smart design. Also has concealed carry compartments for rapid access pulls with uh, quick access tabs that you can just pull uh, pull on the zipper and it opens up really quick. It's kind of an oversized um, handle for the zipper. It's pretty cool. So they also make great apparel, great clothing that supports your uh, EDC, you know, tons of pockets, uh, reinforced pockets and reinforced uh, areas in the pants. So that way you're not tearing your stuff up um, like you would just a pair of blue jeans or whatever. But guys, huge fan. And I can tell you from I've been wearing it and rocking their stuff for a long time now. Quality stuff. Check them out. Go to verdicts.com. Use code FIELDCRAFT and it'll actually save you 20% on your next purchase. That's verdicts.com and it'll save you 20%. Our next sponsor is Kafaru. So um, Kevin Estella introduced me to Kafaru a couple years ago uh, when we first met. And I was, I had heard the name and I, I wasn't really familiar um, with their, um, their bags or any of their other outdoor gear. And whenever I got my hands on my first Kafaru bag, you can tell by the way that it's built. One, is built with quality materials. Uh, and two, you can tell it's built with the end user in mind, right? And it's built by end users. So the guys over there at, and guys at Kafaru, um, top-notch equipment, and they actually use it. So it's not it's not just designed by some, you know, in some mad scientist lab to look cool and, and be okay, but it's actually designed to function for whatever it is that you're using it for. Whatever your outdoor activity is, whether you're hunting, going fishing, just backpacking through hiking, whatever it is, they got something for you. So head over to kafaru.net and check out what they got going on. You won't be disappointed with their gear. I promise you that. Next up is Triarch Systems. Triarch is one of the OG sponsors of ours here at Fieldcraft. Been around since day one and they've always supported us in, in pretty much every way, which is, you know, why they're supporting the podcast. And they were here for our grand opening in person uh, and the whole group of folks over at Triarch Systems are top-notch, which reflects in their products um, some of the best weapon systems that you're ever going to use. I know running, while I was running around with Raul when I first got on with the company, uh, helping him with training, those guns were just amazing, amazing pieces of equipment. Seriously, guys, head over to TriarchSystems.com, use code FUELCRAFT, and it'll save you 5%. Hey, guys, in this podcast, we've got Kevin Estella and the legend Ernest Emerson. and they talk about a bunch of stuff. Yeah, if you know if you know anything about the knife community, uh, knife guys are huge nerds, and I say that with the most respect. And I love all of you guys because I'm a knife nerd a little bit myself. Yeah, yeah. And but I mean, there's just something to be said about a quality blade, and you can find good blades everywhere, yeah. right? But dude, Emerson knives is like, I mean, when you're talking like that's one of the names that comes to mind when you start talking about high end knives and, yeah, and good quality, sure. good quality blades. And they got a fun discussion that you will not want to miss. So Stick buckle around. up and enjoy.
Hey guys, this is Kevin Estella with the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. And this episode is going to be really interesting because very rarely do I get a chance to talk to someone who I consider a pioneer. Now, if you guys follow what I do and where I go and the things that I do with outdoor survival, you probably think pioneer in terms of like traveling through the wilderness and finding uncharted territory. But in this case and in this respect, what I'm referring to is someone who in the knife industry essentially was a pioneer for the tactical knife, the quote unquote tactical knife, uh, the folding Tonto blade tactical knife. And my story with, with this gentleman uh, dates all the way back to my high school years. So we'll get into that in a bit. But who I'd like to introduce you to right now is Mr. Ernest Emerson of Emerson Knives. Ernest, how are you? I'm really good. Hey, yeah. thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. My wife always says, I can't do a lot of things good, but I can, I can talk real well. <laughs> yeah, yes, you can. As, as I can attest to, I've, I've been to your seminars at blade show and, uh, they're, they're quite enthralling. So, um, this is going to be really interesting because as I alluded to in the introduction, my first encounter with your knives was in like a mid to late nineties. It was either a survival guide or it was a, like a knife magazine. And I remember mm -hmm. seeing you standing in the photo with your arms crossed. I was like, number one, this dude's jacked. Number two, uh, I said, what knife is that? And it looked like something that I had never seen before because my folding knives up until that point were all either Swiss army knives or buck one tens. They were more traditional outdoorsman knives. And I was like, what is that thing? And it was one of your early CQC, uh, seven knives. But at the time, I think you were working with Benchmade, um, and you had like a, like a something mm -hmm. going on with them. So I saved all sorts of pennies lifeguarding and I was like, I got to get one of these knives and I got it. And it was such a cool knife. I remember the guy sold it to me as like, oh, it's got a coating on it that's used on like nuclear submarines or something like that. And yeah, and I use that knife everywhere. And then stupidly, stupidly, I sold it um, because I was constantly like buying and trading, buying and trading like a lot of guys do. Eventually got one of your uh, SOCFK knives uh, that was sold through like a, a dealer exclusive. Um, carried that, stupidly sold that one. I wish I never did because you can't even get that one anymore. But uh, over the years, I mean, I've, I've been tracking what you guys have been doing and, and I've used your wave knife or your wave feature on knives for years. And I think you're really, really a, a groundbreaker. When I meant it, when I said you're a pioneer. So um, well, thank you. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about your, your entire, entire career as a knife maker, sure. because we have a lot of interesting parallels and, and actually some mutual friends who I think you're going to be surprised when I bring it up. Yep. Um, but talk us through, I know you were, you were raised in the Midwest, right? Or, or was it Michigan yep. or Wisconsin? Northern Wisconsin. Yeah. And you have a, a background in, in wrestling, right? That was your, your sport. Yeah. Well, it was just about every sport. Uh, I was one of those kind of, I guess, at the risk of sounding real braggadocious, I was more interested in athletics than I was in academics. And, uh, so I would play on, I played football, baseball, uh, a little bit of basketball. And then I, I decided wrestling was better for me than basketball was. Cause number one, I wasn't very tall, but I was always following, following everyone that I went and got near. So, uh, yeah, I went into wrestling and, uh, and went from there. Yeah. And wrestling in the Midwest, like Iowa, especially that's like a whole other culture. I mean that I've never oh. seen more dedicated athletes than Iowa wrestlers, uh, unless of course, well, it, it's, it yeah. is. And, uh, that's where Dan Gable and, 
Uh, we had the Peterson brothers that were from a little town just about seven miles from where I lived that were uh, one year, uh, one of the brothers won the gold and the other brother won the silver. And then the next Olympics, uh, they switched places and the other brother won the gold and his, the other one won the silver. So uh, they were, it, yeah, it's big. It's huge. It's uh, it's kind of like uh, football in Texas, I guess, huh? Right. Oh, for sure. For sure. And then eventually you moved from the Midwest. Obviously, you're in California now. Um, mm-hmm. what, what brought you out there? Well, I decided that I wanted to – well, it, long story. I was going to college. I, I actually had a football scholarship to go and play at a small university in Wisconsin, uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin. And so I went down there and and uh, played football for a little while and then got my rear end handed to me uh, and decided that's that's not where I want I don't, I don't want to do that anymore because uh, again every, I'm not a big guy I was just quick and fast and so I was able to kind of get by on those skills for a long time but when you move into the 220 pounders that are running backs and stuff like that it uh, I didn't do so well so at the, during that whole time, I was also uh, very enamored with uh, fighting and fighting skills mm-hmm. and the martial arts and Jeet Kune Do, which was, of course, as a result of seeing my first Bruce Lee movie, uh, which I, I got to admit, I've probably seen Under the Dragon 25 times and, and all the other ones <laughs> that he was in. And so uh, I was a uh, subscriber to Black Belt Magazine. And they were they ran a couple articles on a school out in California that was uh, the instructors that Bruce had passed on the uh, the laurels to teach uh, Jeet Kune Do, and it was called the Filipino Cali Academy. And I, I read about it in Black Belt uh, a number of times, uh, Mr. Dan Inosanto and, and Richard Bastillo. And I was like, man, if I want to fight, I got to go. I got to go there. So I moved to California just to train at the uh, Filipino Cali Academy. And, and which is weird as an aside, um, people think, Oh, wow, that's a little extreme to go. I'll do that. When I got there, there were guys from all over the world who literally uprooted themselves, uh, from Europe, from Asia, from, uh, Russia, from all over the United States. I ran into people that literally moved to, uh, the Southern California area just to train at that school. And, uh, so I was one of those guys. And so that's where I, that's why I came to California. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. I don't think a lot of people realize that there, there was a culture for a while of a lot of grandmasters and high level, uh, ranking instructors from different Filipino martial arts that were essentially, uh, couch surfing, you know, during that time living on couches mm-hmm. in training. And that's yeah. actually one of the first parallels. My, one of my instructors, one of my jujitsu instructors, a uh, very, very good friend of mine, he is uh, actually one of uh, Sifu Bastillo's uh, top students. That's uh, Chris Smith. And Chris actually named his son Richard after Richard yeah. Bastillo. Um, so, you know, Iron Dragon, if you guys that are listening yeah. have never looked up the Iron Dragon, you need to because the man was incredibly, incredibly talented. Um, and well, well yeah, go ahead. Not only was he talented, uh, Kevin, but he was a person who influenced a huge amount of people in a very, very positive way. Uh, he became a mentor to me, and I was mm-hmm. not the only one who fell into that that category. Uh, but yes, Richard was, he was more than just a teacher. He was, uh, I don't know how to describe it. I, I uh, 
your favorite uncle and maybe yes. even your, some of your father, et cetera, you know, all that good stuff. So, yeah, I had met him a couple of times. I, I went through a couple of his seminars and I remember instantly feeling like I was right at home with him. I mean, he was joking oh, around yeah. and, you know, he had, he had this smile that was ear to ear. Um, what a really, really nice guy. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I, and I know what you mean when you're saying like, he was like that uncle, you know? <laughs> yeah. But see, there's another side to Richard that a lot of people probably never encountered. He was a tough, tough SOB. And I say that with all due respect. So mm -hmm. the, the reason that he has the name Iron Dragon, <laughs> there's a good reason for that. Uh, he was one of the real fighters, if you will. Uh, as, a, as a person, he was a fighter uh, who happened to train in the martial arts. So you can read into that however you, however you want. Yeah. So, so shout out to all the IMB community out there. Um, and obviously yeah. I'm going to give a, a big shout out to my friends at the IMB CT in Connecticut. Cause they're, mm -hmm. uh, that's my roots. Now the Filipino martial arts, obviously that paved the way for you in terms of, of a lot of what you're doing now, because I remember hearing, and I don't know if you said this at one of the seminars at blade, or if I read this about you, but in order to start paying like for this, you know, the privilege to train, you started making your own knives and you, I think you made your first, so you could start training with the Bally song, but then people mm -hmm. noticed the quality and were like, Hey, I want one. And it was, it was really that knife that, and for those of you that don't know, the Bally song is another name for butterfly knife. Um, that yep. was really the, the first one that got you going, right? Yeah, actually it was one of those deals where uh, I was, I was a starving student uh, along with a lot of other people. And there were times that the dues at the Academy were $12 and 50 cents a month. And there were times when I could not afford to pay that $12 and 50 cents. And Dan or Richard would just, they would say, Hey, just clean the bathrooms up, sweep the floors, etc., And we'll call it good. So I didn't have any money. And when they started introducing the edge weapon skills, it, it started with the, the, you know, the cane knives and the kind of machete type uh, of mm -hmm. weapons. But of course the sticks, uh, which all translate into, that's the good thing about the Filipino martial arts. It's, it doesn't matter what you have in your hand. Once you understand the flow and the, the body mechanics of, of, of using your body and your, and your, uh, hand-eye coordination and all that in tandem. Uh, we started with the knives and of course it was a butterfly knife and it's kind of a strange little quirky story, but, um, the butterfly knives were about a hundred to $150 a piece at that time that were the ones made here in the U S and they were made by a company called Pacific cutlery, which was owned by a gentleman named Les Deasis who went on to found Benchmade Knives, mm -hmm. and uh, they were they had to move out of California because I think California made them illegal at at one point, and so Les took the business and moved it up to Oregon, and and it became Benchmade. So uh, interesting that you know ten years later I'm standing in Benchmade's offices uh, designing knife for the company Benchmade when it was actually Benchmade that that forced me to make my own knives because I couldn't afford to buy them, but uh, the the rest of the story is I went to Richard uh, uh, Bastillo and I said, uh, Sifu, could, could I, um, I think I might be able to make one of those knives. Could I borrow your knife? And he said, yeah, go ahead. Man. And so I took it and went home uh, for a three or four day weekend and came back and, and sh I made the knife out of with a drill press and hand file and, you know, acetylene torch and stuff like that to, treat the blade and hand filed the bevels on it and all this and that. And I went back and, uh, 
showed him the knife and handed him his knife. And then I showed him my knife and he said, well, it's, it's, it's not bad, but it's not good. <laughs> and, and that was what he told me. And I said, well, you know, do you think it'll work? And he goes, can you flip it around? And I go, heck yeah. And so, uh, that was the first knife that I ever made. And as a result of making that knife, other students that were there who were as poor as I was wanted to have one of those knives, but certainly couldn't afford one of those hundred fifty dollar ones. And uh, they said, "Will you make make me a knife?" And I said, "Well, if you pay for the the materials, I'll make knives for you guys." And so that really started my knife making career. Yeah. And that was you roughly. Know, was uh, because, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So go ahead. No, no, no. That was that's the long and the short of it, right there. That started me on my path. And on your website, I believe it said uh, that was roughly what, 1979? Yeah, 79, 80, somewhere in there. Those those years have now melded <laughs> into a, a homogenous blob. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to interrupt the podcast for just a second and talk to you about our sponsor, Athletic Greens. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain an effective nutritional habit to give our bodies the nutrients that it needs to thrive. Busy schedule, poor sleep schedule, lack of exercise, the environment, stress, or just simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us uh, deficient in a lot of the key nutrients that we actually need to continue to thrive. Well, this is where Athletic Greens steps up, saves the day. It's a life-changing nutritional habit. Their daily all-in-one superfood powder is your nutritional essential super easy guys. I've been using it for a while now myself. Um, I love to use it, um, as is kind of a meal replacement. So in the mornings when I'm up early to go do a shoot or going to teach, pour it in a bottle, shake it up and I'm good to go. It actually tastes really good too. Um, there's some others on the market that are not near as good. The stuff is amazing. Uh, and it actually makes a huge difference. I don't feel all groggy like I would if I just grabbed fast food. I actually am energized from it. So they're offering the audience for the Fuelcraft Survival Podcast uh, one free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase at athleticgreens.com forward slash fieldcraft. All you got to do is head over to athleticgreens.com forward slash fieldcraft to get your free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Guys, you won't be disappointed. You, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, Benchmade with their, their company. And a lot of people don't realize also that the, uh, the original Benchmade logo was Bally song, right? Like that was the name of the company yeah. before. Butterfly. Um, I have one that was given to me by my buddy, Mike Grosso that was given to him by a gentleman named Rick Monsoor. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. sorry. No, it was Mike Grosso. Uh, the, uh, the story was with this one, it was one of Jody Sampson's originals. Yeah. And yep. This guy, Rick Monsoor, who we're friends with, uh, was training with his knife and he was training from like a reverse grip using it, but he was doing it in his car. And the way that he was flipping it, it involved like a drop of the hand at the very end. Well, he was mm. doing this in his car and he accidentally poked himself in the leg with it. And he called, he called Jody Sampson on the phone. Uh, and, and if you guys don't know, Jody Sampson made all the Conan swords. Um, yeah. and he said, Hey, uh, yeah, I, I cut myself in the leg. Well, my friend Mike, who was waiting to get his Bally song from Jody Sampson, heard and watched Jody Sampson hear the story about this guy cutting himself in the leg. And then he looked at, at Mike and said, you know, I'm going to take this knife and I'm going to put it to my grinder. And he did. And he rounded the the whole the whole front of it, the, the tip, 
and the edge. And he said, when you learn how to use this one correctly, I'll put an actual live blade on it. And, uh, <laughs> and I, and I have that, that belly song to this day. And, and Mike was like, don't you ever sell that thing? I'm like, no, cause it's incredible <laughs> history. Um, so yeah, a lot of people don't realize that that's one of the strongest, if not the strongest locking mechanisms on a blade, right? Because oh, yeah. there's no, it's not like it's uh it's not like it's a liner lock or anything like that. Like that is no. the strongest one out there. Um, if it's on, if it's in your hand and you have a closed grip on it, it's it's as solid as a fixed blade knife. And the other the other cool thing about it, uh, besides the flipping and all that mm-hmm. good stuff, which is for fun, of course, we all know that. Uh, but if you were to end up in a tussle with somebody and it fell onto the ground, uh, it's not locked open. So if the other person were to grab it, uh, there is a less of a chance that they would have a working knife in their hand. Uh, in other words, if I had a big fixed blade and dropped it right. on the ground and was wrestling with somebody and they were able to grab it, they could use the knife on me. So that's there's some hidden hidden things about that knife that maybe some people aren't completely cognizant of. Yeah, I wish the stigma would just disappear about it, but unfortunately, uh, I mean, you got people it's that just think like the movie that made yeah. the switchblade illegal you know what i mean which one was that that made it illegal? do you recall uh west side story it was west side story huh for the switchblade yeah wow. i don't know why they made it <laughs> somebody somewhere said this this has got to be an illegal knife because because of who knows what yeah there's gonna be a bunch of gangs running around singing and dancing yeah, in unison and knives yeah flipping knives <laughs> now, now you eventually moved away from from making the ballet songs and i mean there's a big gap right between 1980 and the mid 90s when you started doing the uh the the tactical tanto knives um what filled that space from like 1980 to like mid 90s well, you mentioned the buck 110 yes. uh, folder uh i also had one of those and uh so what happened is uh i decided that i because I had made some ballet songs that there was a gap in there. I didn't start making knives and mm-hmm. never stopped. I just was making the ballet songs, uh, for my friends at the Cali Academy and, uh, had not considered that this was a career path or even a serious hobby at that time. And so, um, I, at some point, you know, had my book 110 and I decided to take it apart and at, at the time, I was working as a machinist um, in a small shop in what is a city called Gardena, California. And so I had access to some machines, milling machines and drill presses and things like that. And I fabbed some parts together and, again, made a knife that was um, uh, a lockback and hand-filed the, the blade profiles and the bevels and all that good stuff. And it was rather crude. I've got to admit there's no way around that. Um, and, but it caught me that like, God, this is a lot of fun. And then, um, I think I saw something in a magazine like soldier of fortune or something like that. It was something about knives or handmade knives or an article about someone. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. These guys actually make knives. And there was a gun show coming up here in California. It was called the Pasadena Gun Show, and it was a big one. It had like six or seven miles of, of aisles and all that. And so I talked my wife into going out there with me, and we went, and there was a knife maker's section in this one kind of, um, gosh, what do you call the uh, the round domed uh, buildings that were used during World War II, uh, Quonset huts. Mm. It was like in a big Quonset hut. And... Uh, I walked in there and lo and behold, 
there were uh, there was Mel Pardue and several other makers, a couple guys local, and I looked at what they were doing and I I was like, what what do you do? And well, I make knives. And I go, but what's your real job? And they were like, no, uh, this is what I do. I I make knives for a living. And I was like, what? And I looked at my wife and I was like, oh my gosh, I got to do this. this. This is so cool because they they were um, really fancy, nice looking, clean, like knives that you can't at that time you couldn't buy from Buck or uh, Gerber or you know whatever other knife companies were in existence at that time. Uh, they were custom knives with with antler handles and stuff like that. And I went home. I bought a book there by a guy named Sid Latham that was Knives and Knife Makers. And I fell in love with the uh, I fell in love with it. And that's when I actually decided I'm going to do this. Come hell or high water, uh, I spent about four or more five years um, doing it while I had a real job. And then at a certain point, I guess, when I felt I had reached a, where there were people that were actually paying me for money for the knives on a regular basis, as many as I could make in my garage, um, I went to my wife and I said, hey, uh, Mayor, I'd like to do this uh, full time. And she was like, what? Because I had a really good job. I was a prototype tool and dime maker for Hughes Aircraft, and I had every benefit. I had top wages. I had, I mean, everything that most people make their entire career out of, I, I had it. And I said, I want to quit and make knives. And luckily, I had one of those wives that uh, stand by your man kind of thing. And she said, let's, if you think you can do it, let's give it a shot. And lo and behold, off we went. So it sounds like you had everything at that job except passion, right? Like that yeah. your passion yeah. is in, in making knives and you yeah. follow, you followed the passion and look where you are today. Um, yep. We've got so many listeners that are military guys, right? I mean, mm -hmm. our, our founder, Mike, is a former Green Beret. What mm -hmm. was that like when you got your first, I mean, and, and obviously feel free to, you know, redact or, or not mention who mm -hmm. or what, but what was that like when you first heard that guys in the military were tracking on, Hey, these knives are really, really good. And we want to start carrying them. I mean, what was that like when you got the first call? Did you have a little bit of that shock? Like, wait, these guys want well, to carry my knives? Yeah. But, uh, what's, what's, what happened was I had become a, um, this is when I was still a part-time knife maker actually. Mm -hmm. And I'd gone to, uh, several shows, and one of them was the Southern California um, Knife Show. And I'm at a table, and these three kind of scraggly-looking, long-haired guys came up to my table. And they were asking me about some knives. Uh, they really were interested in Phil Hartsfield's knives. And Phil was the guy who made uh, a chisel grind fixed blade that was absolutely one of the most scariest, sharpest knives ever made by human beings. Um, and they said, we'd, we'd like to uh, see if you could make a folding version of this knife. And I said, okay. Uh, you know, they said, we need to be able to scrape barnacles and do a bunch of stuff. And I said, really, what do you guys do? And they, they said, well, we're, we're underwater welders. And I was like, oh, cool. Oil derricks, all that good stuff. Got it. And ship repair. You know, that's, that's legit. So uh, we went through doing a bunch of iterations for them. Uh, I'd make a knife, they'd come up 
they well, obviously were here in Southern California at the time, or at least these three individuals were, and they'd come up to my uh, shop and it's like, yeah, it's not, not quite long enough. We want a little bit more of this or that. Um, we want this chisel, this, or we want uh, something going on here. The handle has to fit with, you know, when you have gloves on and all this kind of good stuff. So that took about a year of just back and forth and everything. And then, um, well, it didn't take a year, but uh, it took a while. And then one day uh, they showed up and I had this knife that was eventually became the CQC six. It was, I, I was putting different features in and out of the knives that I was making for them. And finally, this one was like, I think we got it. This is really a good sound design fits in your hand, et cetera. It's the right size, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, they looked at me and one of the guys said, Hey, Ernie, you know what? Uh, after all this time, we, we find that you're pretty good wood. And I was like, okay. And they said, well, we haven't been very forthright with you. And I was like, okay, now what? And they said, well, we're not underwater welders. We're Navy SEALs. And we're in a special unit. Uh, right now we're detached out here on the West coast, but we generally spend our time on the East coast. And, uh, we want you to make these knives for us. And I was like, damn, this is awesome. And so that was the start of that. And of course, as you know, and as you're, um, well, it, I guess you're probably just like me. If you have something cool, you want to show everybody. Right, and right. <laughs> uh, that's, that's kind of what happened. And eventually um, we started making those knives, uh, a lot of knives. And, that's what led to Benchmade actually uh, having the CQC7 model because there was no way on earth that I could keep up with the demand from the police and military as a handmade, you know, guy in his garage uh, building knives uh, operation. And yeah, it was it was an honor more than anything else. Uh, uh, the shock and awe of, of dealing with elite uh, units, and, and this actually spread across. The, the globe, I guess, because pretty soon there was Norwegians and Swedes and Italians and uh, SAS, Brit the British, and a whole bunch of different uh, people, if you will, uh, wanting these knives that were all in the military. And uh, it was it was really an honor. And I think one of the things that was that made my relationship with everyone so comfortable, I guess they felt real comfortable with me was because we never, uh, we never really said anything about it. Um, we didn't, uh, for a rather crude term, we didn't whore out our association mm -hmm. with any of the units that we were working with or military, uh, 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 people that we were involved with. And I think that gave them a real comfort level of just being able to be upfront with me about uh, what was going on and what we were making and what it was for. Yeah. I th there's an old expression. It's like, uh, work hard enough until you don't have to introduce yourself when you enter a room. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I think there are a lot of, a lot of folks out there in different industries that like attaching themselves to these elite groups or these different people, just so they can kind of have that coolness by association. But yeah. I recall, I recall like from my teenage years, you know, in, in the nineties, I remember, you know, reading about all these knives and people were like, oh yeah, you know, these guys carry them. These guys carry it. Like, I'm like, what, what is this? You know? And then I finally got one. I'm like, this thing is stout. And it was like something <laughs> that I never, never handled before. Um, 
and then I, I just I was I was totally impressed with it because it was just so durable. Um, and mm -hmm. the chisel grind was really unique because it's only on one side of the blade, right? The other side's mm -hmm. completely flat. Um, so it was just very unique. Now, in addition to the military that that was carrying them. Your, some of your knives made it into Hollywood, right? Like there are some movies that oh, people yeah. probably saw and didn't realize, hey, that was an Emerson knife. I mean, yeah. where 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 can people see them? Well, um, the there was a movie with Scott Glenn called uh, The Night of the Running Man, which was a cool, that was a pearl-handled CQC6. That's one uh, where he cuts the guy in the eyes, right? And he says, buy a dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember he that one. right on his chest and the camera came and panned it right close to it. But uh, then there was Tears of the Sun. There was, uh, oh, gosh, the one where the Navy SEALs took over Alcatraz. What the hell was that? Oh, The Rock. The, uh, yeah, The Rock. Uh, the I worked with, with a TV show called Soldier of Fortune. There was um, another one with, uh, gosh, sorry to sound like I'm so, so uh, addled, but... Um, one of the movies was the the kid that uh, everybody has that skull painted on their stuff nowadays. Uh, his wife got killed and he became a, a guy who went after and killed all kinds of bad guys. And it's the, the God, what's the name of it? It's that, that skull with the real long teeth looking straight lines down below the, the, the Punisher. Skull. Pardon me? The Punisher? The Punisher, yeah, yeah. We did uh, stuff for those movies. Then, of course, John Wick movies and a, a whole bunch of them. I, it's not like I don't remember them, but um, I just don't have them at the top of my head. But sure. yeah, there was a lot of movies that we worked with. And I, and I did a lot of advising for some of the fight uh, scenes. Because I was working with a, a group, uh, actually was a bunch of former Navy uh, SEAL Team 6 guys, it was a group called uh, GSGI, Global Studies Group uh, International. And we did a, a lot of training uh, all over the world and a lot of security advising and stuff like that. Uh, my my expertise was in the hand-to-hand -hand combat and edge weapons. Um, and the they got picked up, uh, a guy named Harry Humphreys got picked up by Hollywood for... Um, doing a lot of the tech advising so that uh, people actually knew how to salute and, and how to dress and things like that in all the movies and that all their gear and everything was squared away and correct. And uh, Harry went on to become really successful uh, as a uh, military advisor to a lot of movies that have, that have happened since then. Wow. Now, at what point did you say, because I knew you mentioned training, at what point did you say that you were kind of like, man, I, I enjoy making knives. I enjoy training in combatives and I can't like, I can't travel across town. So I'm just going to put a, a martial arts academy essentially in your, your factory. When did that happen and how did that happen? Because I think that's one of the coolest things, um, at Fieldcraft, we were talking about setting up a, like a, like a fight club, you know, where we'd have mm -hmm. our, our padded walls and we'd have, you know, body opponent yep. bags and things like that, because we all want to want to continue training. Um, but when did it happen for you where you're like, I need to do this? Well, I was, we were traveling all over, um, and doing a lot of training and, the we would do them in VFW halls and different. Uh, you know, we did, we trained a lot of prison guards, so we would be at the prison uh, training facilities. We did. Uh, I was helping um, 
a guy named Chris Caracci and I basically, Chris was the in charge, but I was a uh, second in command. We set up the first edged weapons uh, training that ever took place at um, uh, the big oh God, Jeff Cooper's place down in uh, Arizona. A gun site. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at, at this interesting little story, um, Chris was one of those kind of visionary guys. And uh, he was one of Dick Marcinko's original uh, plank owners and all that. And what happened was at, at that time, all the gun guys, the guys who were going to gun site and stuff like that, or people that were shooters were like, I don't need that karate stuff. Cause you know, I'll just shoot the guy and all the karate world. Uh, and I just use that as a generic term. All the karate world was like, I don't need a gun. Cause you know, I'll just beat the guy with my bare hands. And there was a a line between the two that was almost a jealousy type, you know, mm-hmm. you're not good enough for me and we're not good enough for you, that kind of thing. And Chris was one of those guys that, uh, coming from that environment and haven't been in close quarters, uh, conditions where your life was, you know, being tested. Um, he said, man, we should set up, a, you know, shooting and fighting, uh, environment so that, you know, if if your gun jams or if something goes wrong or before you can get to your primary weapon or whatever, you have to duke it out with somebody or, or fight, you know, or you're attacked. Cause a lot of times, you know, we're dealing with good guys, so you're not the attacker. And of course a bad guy has as a predator has all the advantages that a predator takes advantage of, which is surprise and stealth. And uh, they're going to hit you or attack you before you, uh, there's going to be a fugue state in there before you can even figure out what's going on, what's happening to me. And so um, Chris was t- real aware of those kind of situations and really said, let's let's do this and convinced uh, there's a guy named Bill G at the time who was running the gun site that uh, they should introduce this, you know, fighting edge weapons slash shooting course down there. And that was really in the very beginning of when that world, those two worlds started to merge. And this was in the, I'm going to guess back in the early eighties when we did this and uh, maybe mid eighties. And so that was the first time that those two worlds actually recognized each other and said, Hey man, hell, I'm a, I'm a black belt, but I don't know which end of the gun to point at the guy. I'm going to go take some gun, some gunfighting classes and all that. And so it was kind of cool to be at a point in time where we broke that ground. And within a couple of years, I mean, it was all over the, the known universe. People were, had edge weapon classes and handgun and edge weapon and hand to hand combat and gunfighting and all that. So it's very cool to be there. Guys, I'm going to interrupt the podcast again and just talk to you about our sponsor, Bespoke Post. So this fall, take Bespoke Post on all your adventures. With a new lineup of essential box of awesome collection for guys, guaranteed to upgrade your life. So a lot of the gear that you're going to get out of these guys' uh, boxes, especially for men out there, um, it's things that you can use in your outdoor equipment. You can have it in your house. Um, You know, all that manly stuff that we all seem to never be able to find good quality gear to use. Um, even if it's just for your bar, uh, Bespoke Post in their box of awesome has all that equipment for you. So whether you're out taming the wilderness or taking on your bar to pro level heights, Bespoke Post 
only sends guys the best stuff every month. No matter what you uh, are into, Box of Awesome has you covered. From style and grooming goods to barware, cooking tools, and outdoor gear, Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. So to get started, you can go take a quiz at boxofawesome.com. That's boxofawesome.com. And they'll kind of categorize you from there, right? They'll figure out what you're interested in. Uh, your answers will help pick the right box of awesome for you. So they release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. All kinds of stuff is going to be in there. It, it's completely free to sign up, and you can even skip a month or cancel at any time. Each box costs you only 45 bucks, and it has over $70 worth of value. So guys, head over to boxofawesome.com, and use. you can actually go down to the... Um, the show notes here and you'll find the link. So at checkout, it'll get you 20% off your very first box. Um, use the code fieldcraft, but just follow the link down in the show notes. And I promise you guys will be excited when you get your first one. Yeah. And you're even seeing that now, like, uh, like hoist Gracie is obviously a, a name that everyone knows. And I think he was just training, uh, with a couple guys recently on, uh, on different carbine stuff. Like the guys are a competitive shooter now. Um, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, well, he's been, yeah, go ahead. He's been trained by CAG over down in, in right. Bragg, so. yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty good group to train you. Right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, now, your, your designs, right? Like I want one of my good friends was like, yeah, if you, if you get a chance to talk to him, you got to ask him about this. Like, like obviously you had the, the Tonto blade, right? You had the, the CQC seven, but then you came out with the commander and what was the, the idea behind that one? Because just looking at the, at the design of that blade, I would say it's more of a slashing style knife, one that's going to mm -hmm. slash, uh, slice more effectively than it would thrust. Mm -hmm. What was the, like, what was going on with that design process? Well, there, there are, there are things that you would define as a fighting knife, mm -hmm. and there are things that you would define as a combat knife. And there's a lot of crossover um, characteristics that exist between the two, because any knife that you might have on you at any given point in time could be a fighting knife if you if someone uh, decided to uh, do harm to you. Uh, but at the same time, uh, some of these really dedicated like a like a, a Fairbairn uh, Sykes mm -hmm. uh, commando knife really good at what it was intended to do but probably and again I don't I don't want to offend anybody but probably not the best combat knife for opening uh fuel canisters and MREs or or uh, at the time you know whatever um more of a dedicated type of knife so that's that's something I would say is a fighting style knife. It was designed to penetrate uh, any organ in the body when it's inserted from anywhere on the body type of thing. Uh, and so it had a specific purpose, but a combat knife like a K-bar, uh, which is probably the most used fighting knife in the history of mankind, if you will, uh, in real combat, uh, has a more generic uh, purpose in mind, which is a pry bar and a, you know, something you could pound through the top of an oil can and things like that and still uh, put an edge on it and still uh, use it uh, if someone jumped down into the foxhole where you were. And so we looked at what I was doing because I was working with some guys down at Bragg at the time and uh, they wanted a knife that you could use that had a little bit of forward weight in the uh, blade 
So the only way for me to do that without making it a longer blade was to give it a belly. Now, I didn't come up with the concept of a recurve blade by any stretch. That's one of those things that's been around for since man was making knives. But I put that onto the commander blade to give it a little more forward weight because um, if you're using that knife to, to, you know, I guess cut 10 stakes or do any type of generic type of uh, uh, cutting and whittling or, or slicing or whatever, uh, you had that, that heavier belly out front. And then if you were, if you had to cut someone out of uh, let's say some webbing or something, uh, that curve that was behind the belly of the knife uh, gathers material so that when you pull, um, you grab a bunch of, of nylon and pull that knife towards you with the edge facing, let's say, towards your your body, uh, it gathers down into that curve. So as it rides down into that curve, it slices and, and shears at the same time. And we weren't really concerned too much about the knife being a quote-unquote stabbing weapon because, mm-hmm. again, it was more of a a generic used, uh, a generic, uh, uh, defined set of parameters that the knife is going to be applied in. And, uh, so that's the, that's the reason it was, a, it was a heavier blade out front, uh, so that you could use it if you had to chop with it a little bit. Remember the smatch it? Oh yeah. That knife? was, that was another one yeah. that was, uh, I know Boker is making one now, but that was, that was, a, yeah. that was another, uh, Applegate design, right? Yeah, yeah, and it had that forward mass, you know, because uh, you know it's just like a hammer. The mm-hmm. hammer isn't heavy except that on the on the end of it, because that's where you want all your force to be. Yeah, I've got a friend who uh, his dad would cut off his handles on his hammer if he was seen using the hammer like choked up on it. And he's like, "Look, mm-hmm. you got a twelve inch handle. You're only using you know eight inches of it." So the dad yeah. would go over and like. Early on in his in his like uh, carpentry mm-hmm. career, the dad cut it right off. He goes, "I guess you don't need that." And the kid was like, "But, but dad, you know." He goes, "Use the whole handle, dummy." Um, well, we yeah, go ahead. In in bladesmithing, you'll find out, or blacksmithing, you'll find that uh, a lot of the guys, uh, a lot of the times, you're using the hammer. You're actually almost choked all the way up to the to the head of the hammer when you want to get down and do some real fine, uh, precise mm-hmm. uh, detail work with it. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. And in that design, like with that weight forward, I mean, people think that it's, it's only found in like the, the Kukri or Kukri style Mm -hmm. knives, but I mean, like the Romans had it in their copus, like that knife, that design has been around for a very long time, very efficient. Um, but it's kind of cool how these different cultures that may have may or may not have ever met each other, they kind of all figured Mm -hmm. it out around the same time. Um, well, the original, mm -hmm. the original, um, gladius, uh, not not the kind that you always see in the movies. That's the straight edged with the the triangle point on the mm-hmm. on the end. The original Gladius, if you even look at the name, it was called the Gladius Hispaniola or Hispaniensis. And uh, what that was was a knife that came from uh, some of the tribes that were in Hispania uh, at the time, or Hispania. And uh, the name Gladius means shaped like the leaf of a glad, which is a, a flowering plant. And if you look at it, it's, it's I call them wasp-waisted. They're, they have a um, narrower rear portion towards the, the hilt, and then they 
they bulge out a little bit to each side and then they come down to a, a point. So you, you're absolutely right. The Romans used those effectively for hundreds and hundreds of years. I think the, the, the type of gladius, not to get off on a rant or a tangent, but no, this is great. the type of gladius that most people see, which is the two straight edges leading to the triangular point, um, you'll, that was born out of easier to make technology. In other words, uh, as a, as a bladesmith hammering steel, it's much easier to, to hammer that, that shape than to make the, uh, the gladius, uh, wasp wasted type of and it's funny to think too and again not to get off on a sidebar here but think about an army that numbers in the i think at the at the height of the roman empire i think there was almost five hundred thousand uh in uh enlistees in the in the roman army they all had weapons they all had armor they all had spears they all had swords think of the amount of of Smith work that, that was going on. So those guys were searching for the easiest, <laughs> fastest way to, uh, to equip those armies. Yeah. I mean, in, in you, you think about that, like just the logistics, I mean, an army marches on its, mm-hmm. on a stomach, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, feed, yeah. feeding that army and, and clothing that army. And I mean, it's, it's impressive what they were able to do. And, but I always oh, yeah. remind people, and I mean, my background's in teaching, uh, I would always tell people mm-hmm. like no great civilization lasted forever. So even the Romans collapsed and it was because of the, yeah. you know, the, the strange things that were happening inside politics, you know, in the, yep. in the yep. capital. But, uh, God. I, I, I don't, I don't even want to go there. Right. Like I don't want to <laughs> talk about the strange we'll stay away from that. I, I, I spend so much time. Uh, my wife is so mad at me most of the time. She goes, <laughs> God, can't you talk about something else? And I'm like, you know what? You're right, honey. There's, there's a lot of good stuff going on. I don't want to dwell on, uh, yeah. on the other stuff, but yeah, you know, I will say this though. It, it, it is very important that everyone, every single one of us as, as, citizens of the United States and of the world, the, the statement by George Santayana, those who are not aware of their history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. And I'm paraphrasing, but that is 100, as a historian and, and a, a student of, of basically uh, Western history, uh, it, is, it is absolutely 100% true. If, if you forget the way things were, you're going to repeat them. And it's just a unfortunate. It's unfortunate that our schools are not teaching uh, those types of concepts uh, to our, to our children. Yeah. And, it, and that's it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, And I'll just simply add to this. Uh, you know, I, I came from that background of, of teaching in the public schools and it, you know, when I left it, I was already seeing the turn and it, it was really frustrating. And even though, you know, we have a, a history that might be controversial. We can't good, bad, and different. You know, you have to recognize the history. You can't be offended by it. You know, it's, no. it's in your past, right? Like in, and those, yeah. those people who well, get, you didn't do it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, it, it just, it blows my mind how easily, you know, if we're offended by something, then, you know, we, we just won't talk about it. We're going to put our head in the sand. And and as you mentioned, yeah. it's going to, it's going to rear its ugly head. Uh, oh yeah. I think something that well, is, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to add one thing. I, I think I heard a guy say one time, um, very, very, um, um, he was a professor 
and he had written a book, and he said one of the things that happened, why, why do we all have such a negative uh, and a glaring awareness of uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi, uh, 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 the Holocaust, and all the things that the Germans did bad during World War II? Well, there were the Nuremberg trials. There were all the books. There was all the documentaries. There was all the information about it. And he said one of the things that has happened with the fall of, of the uh, Soviet empire in Eastern Europe and the collapse of the Soviet Union is that there was no trial in any of those countries. And, and if it was, it was not on a global scale so that we don't have this collective memory as a worldwide population of all of the evils and, and illnesses of the communist Marxist uh, system. So these kids that are 20 years old, for gosh sakes, they were born after the fall of the Soviet empire. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Yeah. And many they, of the kids in high school now, they weren't alive. Yeah. Actually, all the kids in high school now weren't alive during 9-11. Nope. Isn't <laughs> yeah. that crazy? It, it, so, anyway. it blows my mind. But I think there's no, there's no question about it where you stand in terms of, uh, you know, government and people's uh, ability to take care of themselves. Like you just look at the the names of the knives that you have on your site. I mean, we've got Patriot, we've got Sheepdog, we've got, uh, you know, police utility knife. Like, I think there's, you know, I think there's a, a, a pretty clear idea of, of who you support and, and what you do. So we don't even have to go there anymore. Uh, well, you know, it's yeah. funny. Let, let me just say, cause you, you're involved in, in the field of survival and trade and field craft and all that. There was a time when, um, the rugged individual is the epitome of the of the American man, the American male. The and again, all due respect to the women, because I come from a my, my family is only a couple generations removed from uh, scratching the hard earth uh, to to survive, and uh, the women were as hard as the men and worked as hard as the men. But the the idea about the rugged individualism as an American concept and trait was, we were so proud of it. It was something that was so, uh, to, a goal to strive for. And now that's called toxic masculinity. So, uh, as a person from your field that you're, that you're now involved in, um, you have no idea how important I think all of that stuff is, uh, for my, my kids and my grandkids to learn how to, be self-sufficient and start a fire and know how to tie knots and how to fell a tree and how to, you know, build something. So, yeah, you mentioned uh, rugged individualism. That's, that's Teddy Roosevelt all day right there. That's my man. Hell that's, yeah. He was, he was my favorite president to, uh, to teach about. <laughs> and the students were like, why do you have a Teddy Roosevelt, you know, head on your desk? I had a, like a little, <laughs> a little bust. I'm like, cause this guy right here is who all of us should strive to be like. And, you know, and to your yep. point about the, the women, we just had Kyle Lamb here this past weekend, and he's like mm-hmm. the most scary, cre- the scariest creature. And I'm paraphrasing. He's like one of the most the most dangerous creatures on the earth is the mother. He said, "You look at any oh, yeah. animal, a mama bear. You look at yeah. anything, like any animal that wants to protect its young. Uh, the mother yeah. is going to be the more dangerous of of those." So shout out well, to all the moms there. They, yeah, the the thing about uh, a mother's instinct is. Uh, Every fight that I've ever been in, no matter how how serious it was, there was a point where you would back off. Mm-hmm. In other words, whether if, if if I was prevailing, if I was getting my rear end handed to me, I, I was hoping that guy would. If I said uncle, he was going to 
stop pummeling me. But my point is, is that when a, when a female is protecting her young, the, the volume doesn't go up or down. It's full on when the power button is pushed and it's a, they'll give their life in a, in a heartbeat. So there's no hesitation about, uh, the extreme effort that they'll put into protecting those, those babies, whether it's baby squirrels or, or baby bears. Uh, and most, most of us, uh, you know, if, if you're talking about just a fight in a, in a parking lot or a bar, not, a, not a, I'm not talking about being over in uh, Iraq or Iran uh, or Iran or uh, Afghanistan and uh, in a firefight, but because that's a kind of a different creature altogether, but um, man, you threaten a, a female's babies and she'll fight to the death. And there's no, there's no crying uncle and she's going to give up. <laughs> yeah. We have, we have Amber who works with us and Amber is probably like all of 105 pounds. And like, when she gives you a hug, you're like, where's the rest of you? You know, like she's, she's small, but she carries a 43 X Glock and she will, yep. she'll put rounds in you if you touch her kids. Oh uh, yeah. You know, and it's interesting because you often hear people say like, oh, I could never do this. I could never do that. But then you change the scenario a little bit. But what if they attacked your kids? Oh, I'd kill them. Like, yeah. and they didn't, yeah. they don't, they're not thinking second, third, fourth order effects. It's like, you touch my kids, yeah. you're dying. I'll deal with all the consequences yeah. later. Yeah. So you're spot on with that one. Those mothers out there, God, good. Yeah. God love them. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Now. Uh, you said something in a seminar one time, and I don't want to, I don't want to mis misquote you. It was something about train, like a train, like an animal train, like a nightmare. Be it, what was that quote that you have? Train like a madman fight, like a demon. Yes. Um, can you explain yeah, that a little bit? I'm sorry. Would you mind explaining that to the, to the listeners? Well, the thing that I believe is important is if you never push yourself, um, to the point where uh, everybody thinks that I'm going to refer back to uh, a gentleman that I've, that I've known a little bit over the years, uh, David Goggins. Oh yeah. Um, he says, you know, he's got a 40% rule. Most people quit at 40% and think they've given a hundred percent. And I, and I 100% agree with him because I was one of those 40% guys. Uh, and once you, I guess really go into situations and force yourself with discipline and, uh, and, and effort and passion that, um, that you beat the hell out of yourself just to see what your limits are and then push on again and again, you're never going to find that, uh, what you're capable of doing. And I'll tell you a, a quick story. Um, there was a time, uh, when, we had a, I was living with a couple of roommates. This is when I was, I'd come here to California and, uh, we had a 71 Plymouth Belvedere and they had the old disc brakes on them. And we were changing the brakes, uh, in our driveway alongside the house. And we had it up on one of those ratchet jacks, the er, 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 mm -hmm. ones that fits under the bumper. And, uh, my buddy Bill, uh, was putting the brake, uh, shoes on and you had to take a, uh, we didn't have a, of course we were young and stupid and we didn't have all the right tools. So we had a pair of vice grips and he was 
he was stretching the spring to hook it on the uh, the little knob uh, to pull the brake uh, pads in in, and uh, the the vice grips sprang off the uh, the spring, and my buddy and I were standing there, and he was sitting with his legs uh, spread in a V with the um, the brake drum, the hub, right between his legs, right right oh above his groin. God. Okay, and we watched the car in slow motion go boom and it came down he scooted himself back and it came right down on the top of his foot and my friend and i uh were standing there and and he was screaming i mean it was terrible and we jumped to the front of the car grabbed it under the bumper lifted it up just decompressed the spring we could not lift the car and had to let it back down on his on his foot again so the 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 brake drum never left his foot we just decompressed it a little bit uh, by lifting it up and then had to let the full weight back down again and what we thought was the worst screams we had ever heard all of a sudden were times 10 and at that point without any thinking or without any communication or anything we we picked the car up completely up off the ground about 14 inches off the ground he scooted out and we put it dropped it back down now here's the funny thing and this is one of those weird um moments there was no weight the car was weightless it, it might as well have been a styrofoam box um uh, it was it was the weirdest thing going from not being able to pick up the front end of a, of a Plymouth to picking it up as if it was a box of feathers um, in that kind of a pure white um, mindset where there was no hesitation, there was no thoughts, no thinking process, nothing, no encumbrances or anything except just pick the car up. And that was one of those moments because we could never ever do it again. We tried again and again, you know, over the years, uh, or, you know, over time to go out and try and pick that car up again. And it was one of those weird moments that I was in an unlucky situation, but lucky enough to have experienced it myself that, you know, there's, there's something that exists in us that very few people ever get a chance to, I guess, tap into. But what it told me was there's, you can do a, a million times more than, than you think you can, because as an individual, it takes extreme self-discipline to keep pushing yourself past what you believe was a limit that you had set. And one of the things, again, long-winded story about all this train like a madman if if you train like a madman and i mean train you can't tell a crazy person they're crazy and think about that statement that's because they're in a different mindset if you train to the degree where normal people don't go you start to make that you break down these barriers uh that you had um, set up yourself. Now I'll tell you another quick question because mm -hmm. now you got me on a roll with this. Yeah, this is, I love it. One of my buddies is one of the world's strongest human beings. 
And most people have never heard of him. His name's Pat Povolitis. And he's probably 165 pounds, uh, real, real trim and real, real hard guy. But he's not one of those uh, Icelandic gentlemen that, that lifts the 500 pound round stones and stuff like that. But in the world of actual strength athletes, those guys, when Pat Povolitis walks into the room, they're like, Oh my God, that's Pat Povolitis. Oh, that's Pat Povolitis. Holy smokes. And I mean, these are the guys that are 345 pounders, mm-hmm. that, you know, pull trains and stuff like that. But, uh, I've seen Pat, um, do things that were just off the, off the scale as far as human strength at 165 pounds. And one of the, the first time I ever met him, he was bending horseshoes into, you know, pretzels and stuff. And I, and we have horses, so I know, I know what a real horseshoe is. And anyway, over the years as being his friend, um, I asked him one day, I said, Pat, what was the difference between the day that you couldn't bend the horseshoe and the day that you could bend the horseshoe? I, and I, I was joking. I said, did you go home and do like 10,000 push-ups or something? And the next day you were able to do it. And he goes, no, Ernie. The moment I felt it move, I could bend them all day long. No kidding. Not even a problem bending horseshoes. And I was like, okay, so that's, that's deep because what was the difference? It was mental and mental alone. There was no, like he got stronger on a Tuesday than he was on a Monday. It was strictly a barrier that had been set up by him or, or whatever, uh, in his mind. And for whatever reason, the minute he felt that barrier give, there was no barrier anymore. This, this takes it back to that story that you said at blade, right? About the professor who had the students shoot free throws, right? Yeah. And then this, the group that just visualized them. Yeah. 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 Well, if you, if you go there for a minute, uh, think about this and the, this professor had a, had a class, I think it was a psychology class, and he had the students uh, learn how to shoot free throws. He had a couple of the basketball team guys come in and show them how to shoot a proper free throw. And then he said, uh, okay, we're going to have half the students practice a couple hours a week shooting free throws, and then we're going to have the other half of the class uh, just practice visualizing shooting free throws and going like once a month and shooting some free throws in, in reality on the, on the court. And at the end of the uh, semester, uh, they had a shoot off and the students that just visualize shooting the free throws rather than going and spending two hours a, a couple days a week shooting them actually scored better uh, free throws than the guys who practice actually shooting them. And the, the, the point that is being made here is that think about every time you shoot a free throw in your mind, what is it? It's a perfect free throw. It's a swish. It's all net. But when you're on the court shooting, you're actually practicing mistakes. And that's, that's again, is a, that's a whole nother part of the training aspect that I think people, um, they, they know about creative visualization. Uh, the guys will go out and, and imagine themselves win, winning the race and, and driving the, uh, uh, the race car drivers will memorize the race and in their mind, you know, run the race in their head and all that. But the physical act of uh, doing something 
uh, unless you're doing it perfect, you're practicing a lot of imperfection. Now you can get there. Believe me, I've, there's a lot of guys in the NBA that shot millions of free throws and can shoot the best free throws in the, in the world. But when you're looking at uh, trying to uh, you or I who have a limited amount of time to do things, uh, that aspect of creative visualization uh, and that the fact that every time you do something in your mind, you're doing it perfect. Uh, think about a dream. Um, we, we actually have to go into a state of paralysis because the dream that we're having when we're sleeping is real. In other words, um, if you were being chased by a bear or, you know, whatever, you don't want to be thrashing around in, in the bed and your wife's going, what the hell's going on with you? <laughs> uh, so we go into a state of paralysis because the body and the mind don't know that it's not real. And so if you can literally run a movie in your head, create a movie in your head of what you want to do, uh, if you had 10 hours a, a month to practice something, uh, it, it makes sense to me almost that you would spend eight hours pretending to do it and doing it perfect and then going out there for two hours and uh, and reinforcing that perfection. Um, and that's worked with a lot of guys that they were trying to push through uh, a lot of shooting schools. Now there's, you'll see that, you know, there's a couple of government agencies that made real good use of uh, the creative visualization because uh, they did the same thing. Um, they had guys practice in their mind uh, and guys go to the range and they reinforce, they reaffirm that, yeah, the guys that were practicing in their mind were actually shooting as good with a minimum amount of time on the trigger than the guys that were actually pulling the trigger all day long. Guys, I'm going to interrupt the podcast and talk to you about our sponsor, Manscaped. So listen, you know, I'm Native American. I think I've said this before. Um, I'm basically like the dolphin of the human species. I have like no body heart. It's amazing. Um, but I will say my man, George, and God bless him. I love him to death, but my dude can grow some hair. And I know that Manscaped, when they sent out um, some stuff for us to use and try it out, when I got it, I was actually really impressed with the quality. But I was like, I feel wrong taking this because I'm not even the one in need. But my man George was over there, hair going everywhere. And I was like, dude, let me hook it up. So we hooked it up. And so, but George has given me great feedback. He comes on and does these ads for these guys. But I can just tell you as, as a concerned party for George that he is now living a happier life because of Manscaped. So guys, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code fieldcraft at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Just use code fieldcraft. Unlock your confidence the way that George Bell has. And as always, use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Guys, go down to the show notes, find the link, and help yourself with Manscaped. So what what's next for for your company? I mean, I know that you're you're moving into the world of uh, like very practical daily use knives. Like I know you've got a couple of carving mm -hmm. knives and some camping knives and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, what can we expect from you in like the next say like year or so? Well, the thing about Emerson knives, and, and again, I, I've I don't want to be. It's weird. I've I've I guess in the simple terms, I've always marched to my own drummer. And that might be a little bit different drummer. I've, I've never followed trends and I've never followed, um, what was hot. Or if you if you look at the steel that we use, we use the same steel we've used for the last 35 years because it's a great steel. 
and, and by the way, super steels, uh, every year there's a brand new super steel and how can it be the best steel that's ever been invented? And then next year it's the next best steel. So, you know, we, we go with the idea and I go with the idea. I'm a hammer and nails guy. Uh, I, I, I can appreciate highly finished, perfected objects of both art and use but that's not who I am. If I get a, a hammer, it's going to get the hell beat out of it. And my knives, uh, again, I, I treat my guns really nice. Don't get me wrong, but they're tools. Uh, I have them for a specific purpose. They're not race guns. Uh, I keep them completely clean and ready to go. And if there's anything that goes wrong with them, I take care of it. It's the same idea with the knives. Um, they're a tool and, so they're not fancy. Uh, they're plain Jane. They're about as plain as, as a knife could ever be. Uh, and so as far as my evolution as a knife maker or the future for Emerson knives, it's really going to be a lot of just more practical. It, it has to feel good in your hands. Uh, again, when it comes to ergonomics, uh, I remember the first time I was a 1911 guy and I mean, I have, I have more than I should have. Let's just say that. But the first time, because I can appreciate the the mechanics of a 1911. It's just it's a machine that shoots bullets out the end. That's the way I look at it. And it's so they're so perfect in form and function. But I'll be honest with you, the first time I ever picked up a Glock, I was like, oh my god, this gun was made for me. And that's the same kind of mentality that I try to bring to our knives. It, it's all about, is this knife your knife? Um, Cause I've seen a lot of fancy stuff and a lot of guys are using metallic handles and there's all kinds of gadgets and springs and all that good stuff. Uh, I got it. That's cool. And believe me, I can appreciate it. And um, I understand how some people are very enamored by those types of things, but it's not me and my company reflects me. And so you're getting a, a Chevy 327 engine. You're not getting a Lamborghini, uh, but that Chevy is something that you can take apart and rebuild and, and know that it's going to perform and it's going to be there for you to give to your grandkids if you want. So it's, it's really more about that and continuing that legacy than searching for uh, the perfect wave, as a surfer would say. Phenomenal. Yeah, I'm, right now I'm I'm messing around <laughs> on your website. I'm looking at the uh, the Overland Renegade folder, and mm -hmm. from as an outdoorsman, I'm like, man, that's the one right there. So, uh, where can where can people find you, Ernest? Like, where where's the best place for people to find your knives? To well, you know, check out stuff that's going on. And, and so yeah, forth. this is interesting because uh, we we have now gone 100 percent. Uh, full retail sales. We don't uh, use any dealers. Uh, we don't use any distributors. You won't find us in any stores anymore. Uh, this is, this was a goal. Oh, let me digress just for a second. The the training facility at my knife company. That was mm. a goal that I had since I was probably 13 years old uh, to have my own gym and my own uh, martial arts studio. So that's uh, it. Took me. 30, 40 years to get to the point where I could do it. But that's why I, I opened up the, the school here because we could train and, and do things here at the company. Because again, uh, to digress a little bit, you got a couple minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, 
one of the things that happened when when I made the knives for Benchmade uh, was there were two things I wanted to because I came from uh, guns a gun environment uh, where I lived and being able to take your gun apart and and clean it or fix it or modify it was a huge thing. Uh, Also, all the gun companies that I had worked with over the years uh, offered training and, you know, H and K and and, uh, the SIG Academy and the Colts shooting academies and all, all of those companies offered training in addition to the sale of their product for police officers, military and or civilians. And when I went to Benchmade, I said, Hey, I want to, I want to do classes and offer training in the, um, defense against the knife and, uh, not so much, you know, deadly skills of the ninja, but you know, what to do if you have this knife as a, as a last ditch weapon, when someone attacks you and they were like, Oh no, 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 uh, we can't, we can't do that. There's liability factors and you don't want to be too offensive and all that. And I was like, what? Cause you know, I'm a graduate of a bunch of those different shooting schools. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? But I thought, you know what, if I ever have my own company, I'm going to offer training and my knives at that, at that point in time, there were no commercially available knives, at least to the best of my knowledge that you could take apart. You could prime apart, you could drill the the rivets out, but you couldn't put it back together unless you were a machinist and, and could make parts to put it back together. So when when we started Emerson Knives, I wanted to offer training and I wanted to offer knives that you or I or anybody else with a simple set of tools, a screwdriver and, and a, basically that's it, just a Phillips head screwdriver or a flathead screwdriver, you could take that knife apart, you could clean it, you could tune it. You could make other parts for it and all that. And so we were the first company that that really, I guess, introduced that aspect. And that's a direct result of just me being a gun guy. And so that's that was something that was very important to me from the very beginning was to offer both the training and uh, and the ability of you to, to modify your knife or or uh, clean it or fix it or replace parts as they wore out. And uh, so anyway, having said that, back to your original question, what's, what's up with Emerson Knives? Uh, we're, we're only available directly from Emerson Knives, and it's emersonknives.com. Uh, that's, that's the only place you can buy Emerson Knives anymore. There might be a couple of guys who have some on their shelves that are, that are slowly dwindling out, but uh, it's emersonknives.com. And of course, there's uh, Emerson Knives Instagram and the real Ernest Emerson Instagram also is those are those are kind of the the main places. So, you have any guys trying to be you online? Have you had any catfish issues? Um, not really. Everything's been good. We uh, we wanted to take control of everything that we do with the company because we've got a lot of ideas. In fact, we were we were guilty of having way more ideas than we were able to. Uh, implement over the years. And so now, because we don't have to worry about any, uh, outside, uh, you know, guys, there were guys that were buying Emerson knives and selling them for a dollar over what they paid for them. And I'm like, Holy mackerel, that's, you don't need to do that. The demand is so high, but, um, the ability for us now to offer discounts and things like that, um, and, 
do what we want to do and do smaller production runs. And I've got, I've got a file cabinet that is literally (laughs) overflowing with knife designs. Some of them good, some of them not so good, but nonetheless, there's a lot of designs in there that I've wanted to use over the years. And because dealers were concerned with, we want CKC-7s and we want Karambets and we want Commanders. We were so concerned with having to um, fill their needs and wants that it really stymied us because we're not a giant company. We didn't, we never went to China. We've always been 100% made. Every single part uh, of every piece that goes into Emerson Knives is made in the United States. Uh, we didn't have the ability to get on the telephone and go, hey, Yang, Yang Chu, China, you know, make me another 10,000 of model XYZs. Uh, we didn't have those kind of manufacturing capabilities. But the we wanted to get away from only making three or four knives that were the ones that were the highest in demand. And with the dealers, that was impossible for us to do. So uh, part of that whole driving factor was now we are unencumbered and we can make, if I want to introduce 30 knives or 50 knives or 500 knives of a new model, um, that's totally up to us. Actually, it's totally up to the customer because, again, we're we're not – not going to make a size 22 shoe and hope that everybody on earth uh, buys that shoe because uh, not everybody has feet that big. So again, uh, we need to make the knives that the customers are going to use because if they're going to use them, uh, those are the knives that they're going to, that they're going to get from Emerson knives. Well, I'm wishing you all the, all the best in your business. I mean, I've been a, a big Thank fan you. for many years and, and you, you guys have always been great whenever I've stopped by the, uh, the booth at blade show and, and just talk to your company and, and as a magazine writer, you know, whenever I needed Thanks. like white background photos, your company has always been fantastic. So, you know, I'm wishing well, you all the best, my friend. Really appreciate the support and the effort. And I, I appreciate you having me on today. Cause you know, here I am in this little, uh, place uh and a lot of people don't hear the backstories and the inside the the uh, you know it's they don't get to know what makes an emerson an emerson and what makes me tick and i think that's that's something that maybe i've not been able to get out to the public uh like i like i would want to over the years so i really appreciate the opportunity to to talk about all this stuff and, and to just let me flow on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there is one last question I have to ask and I'm yeah. asking this one, I think on behalf of our, uh, our friend, Kevin Owens, who's a, uh, he's an Irish, uh, former green beret, uh, sniper mm-hmm. instructor. I mean, total badass. What is the story with your Irish gear on your website? Um, Cause I'm looking at some of these shirts and, uh, the order of the Irish bastards. Uh, what exactly is that? Well, that was that was a joke and not a joke. Uh, there was a time when uh, the king of England uh, outlawed the or excommunicated the Irish priests, and so any of the uh, weddings that had been performed by those Catholic priests, or or I believe it was the Catholic priests, yeah, um, they were now. Um, non-valid so all the children were called were, were irish bastards according to the king of england so that's kind of where that came from but that was just for fun uh for um going out on saint patrick's day but with a little tinge of history behind it but yeah i'm 
I got to be honest with you, I've, I've done, a, again, historically and all that, the Irish have supplied most of the, of the world's mercenary troops. And if you look at even the uh, United States uh, military, uh, they, as an ethnic group, they have the highest uh, population both in the military and in the casualties uh, historically throughout the U.S. military. So uh, I don't know what it is about the Irish. Uh, they're, they're your best friends, and they'll go down fighting to protect you, and uh, they'll do it at a, the drop of a hat. So uh, that's just me again. Uh, I've, I like to fight. People have always said, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time over the years going, you know, what's wrong with me? You know, why, <laughs> what's wrong with me? Because yeah. I love fighting and it's not, I'm not a, I'm not a bully. I've never, I'm so anti-bully. That's most of the reasons I, I got into fighting in the first place. But my point is, is that I, I love that environment. It's just something that, uh, I'm again, that passion, uh, I love boxing. I love fighting. I love jujitsu. I love Jeet Kune Do, I love all of that stuff. I just feel home there. And I have to think that's maybe part of my Irish uh, heritage. And so I went with that. And obviously, there's a lot of other people that like that, too. <laughs> well, oh, wow. So, guys. And that's uh, my story. I'm yeah, it's, it. it's a hell of a story. <laughs> um, listen, I, I highly recommend you guys check out Emerson Knives. Uh, they're the good guys out there. Um, Ernest, thank you so much for talking about fighting, oh, training, welcome. mindset, all these cool things that we can put into our EDC. Um, I mean, I really, really think you got something good going on here. So well, thank, thank you. you again for, for joining us guys. Yes, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'm Kevin Estella with Fieldcraft Survival. We will catch you next time.